You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey, Craft Lit listeners, and hello, Christian Humanist listeners. This is another crossover of Craft Lit and Christian Humanist profiles. Uh, we're going to be interviewing Brian from the Theater of War Project. As you'll hear as we record, he's also involved in a whole lot of other projects where theater actually comes to bear on real life. I'm hoping that you're enjoying this, and by all means, please comment both at the CraftLit site and at ChristianHumanist.org. We love to hear from you, and without further ado, here's the interview. Hello, everyone. Today we have with us Brian Dorries. He is the artistic director of Outside the Wire. He is a New York-based writer, translator, director, and educator, and the founder of the Theater of War a project that presents readings of ancient Greek plays to service members, veterans, caregivers, and families as a catalyst for town hall discussions about the challenges faced by military communities today. The company he co-founded, Outside the Wire, is a social impact company that uses theater and a variety of other media to address pressing public health issues, such as combat-related psychological injury, end-of-life care, prison reform, political violence and torture, and the destigmatization of the treatment of substance abuse and addiction. He is a self-described evangelist for classical literature and its relevance to our lives today. In addition to his work in the theater, Brian lectures on his work at colleges and universities. He is an all-around interesting and great guy. And Nathan and I both hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation with him as much as we enjoyed talking to him ourselves. Here you go. You have been doing this for a while. Yeah, I mean, we've been at it as a company for about a little over five years. and okay. uh, But before that, it was an avocation, and I've been doing it for you know, a number of years before before starting the company. That's amazing and um, such a labor of love. My husband had a small theater company um, down in the village in the 90s. Yeah, and I worked on some of the shows, and... Oh, it's a lot of work, especially in New York. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Most of our work takes place outside of the city and also internationally now, so it's not quite comparable to the sweat equity of putting, putting together shows in New York City downtown. Um, yeah. Also, we're, uh, we're defense contractors, so we don't suffer from the same problems. I mean, we have problems. Everyone has problems <laughs> as uh, small nonprofits in New York. So does that mean you have $700,000 toilet seats? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a essence, it does, but um, <laughs> uh, it's just that, you know, we're charging them for, like, you know, translation of Greek drama. <laughs> but a small uh, percentage of your tax dollar goes to, um, you know, into Greek tragedy. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that's my happiest amount of my tax dollar going anywhere. <laughs> That is happy news. Yeah. No, but in all seriousness, we, you know, we had to teach the government uh, what it, you know, we weren't selling, you know, widgets or missiles. So um, there's a learning curve on both sides of the equation. But but when we finally got it off the ground in 2009, um, you know, that sort of launched this scale of the project that we, you know, see now. We did 100 performances that first year of Theater of War. Um, all over the country and the world, um, you know, at that point, um, 
uh, yeah, we were it just it was a different different ball game at that. Wow, and that was that was two thousand nine when you had the first big year. Yeah, the first big year. I mean, I, the first performance of Theater of War for a military audience took place in August of two thousand eight. Um, I had been searching for someone open enough in the military to let me in with my translations of Ajax and Philoctetes, and that had been a difficult process, taken almost a year and a half. Um, I had a lot of doors closed in my face, um, some politely, some impolitely. I, I didn't know a single person in the military. Um, I didn't know how to speak to people in the military. I had no context, but I had this hunch that if um, if we could put the plays in front of contemporary service members, um, something powerful would happen, hopefully healing. Um, and it wasn't until January 2008 when I read an article in the New York Times um, about the sort of epidemic of violence returning from Iraq and Afghanistan to our shores through veterans who were struggling with these signature invisible wounds that um, in that article I read, there was a section called An Ancient Connection, Mm-hmm. Um, in which Jonathan Shea was quoted, and Jonathan by that point was a friend and a supporter. Um, but below that section in which Jonathan was quoted, um, there was a reference to a Navy psychiatrist, Captain William P. Nash, who was the um, um, director of uh, combat operational stress control for the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And um, he said in the article, uh, was quoted as saying, I begin all of my talks um, about combat stress with the ancient story of Sophocles' Ajax. So I then got, wow. you know, started emailing in a frenzy until I got him. And it only took a couple of days. But when I heard back from him, I made my pitch. I sent him some links, of, you know, a DVD of Philoctetes reading we'd done in the city. And uh, he wrote back, um, I don't know about a military audience, i.e. on a base, but um, but how about an audience of four to 700 Marines and their spouses uh, in San Diego at a conference on combat stress. And um, so that was where it was born in August, 2008. um, We flew a group of New York actors out to San Diego um, that included some well-known names, um, Jesse Eisenberg, who hadn't quite, he was not done the social network yet, but people knew who he was. Uh, David Strathairn, who was an Academy Award nominee uh, okay. for Good Good Night and Good Luck, and um, Bill um, Bill Camp, who's sort of a titan of um, New York theater, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, an Iraqi American actress named Heather Raffo, and um, we we the the um, the performance was. Uh, Optional. It wasn't an integral part of the, the conference, right. um, but it was made part of the dinner hour, and it was held in like a Hyatt ballroom. Um, wow! And, and uh, luckily for us, we had a uh, they had a buffet. Uh, <laughs> they, could serve, they could opt in with their um, with their government per diem, right? And um, and there was even a bar. Uh, in the back of this auditorium or this, oh, this ballroom, and. Um, and they had choice between, I think, free tickets to San Diego's Padres game <laughs> at night or uh, Sophocles. <laughs> and out of 700 attendees, we got close to 400 um, wow. that came to see Sophocles. And um, and we had, you know, absolutely no idea what would occur. And um, we, we intended to 
read through um, six scenes from softly the two plays, Ajax and Philoctetes, um, and then and then I knew I wanted to have a discussion. I knew the discussion needed to be as important as the performance in terms of why we were there, and so we pre-selected a few people from the conference that could speak, but I wanted people who weren't um, uh, had no proprietary right to be talking about the Greeks. I wanted people who had lived the experiences the place described, which wasn't right. hard to find. Right. And um, so we uh, we performed the plays um, and uh, the scenes, and um, certainly during the performance, I could tell from the stage that uh, um, you know folks weren't eating; they were you know, mm-hmm. leaning forward in their seats, and they were where their heads were in their hands or they, you know, they were listening with a quality I'd never heard in the commercial or nonprofit theater. Right. And then, um, after the performance, there was this very warm and loud standing ovation, um, where it seemed like, okay, well, maybe we've moved the needle, but this could also be simply a, you know, just courtesy of a military audience that feels touched in some way, but you know, maybe they would do this for anything. And then, and then, and then, when the first or second person got up from the panel to speak, it became pretty clear to me that something even more remarkable had occurred. Um, and I've said this a number of times, but I'll, you know, this is what happened. So this, there's a woman uh, on the panel named Marcelle uh, Waddell who um, who speaks, and she says, um, "Hello, my name is Marcelle. I'm the proud mother of a Marine and the wife of a Navy SEAL." And my husband went away four times to war, and each time he came back just like Ajax, <gasps> dragging invisible bodies into our house. <sighs> and to quote from the play, our home is a slaughterhouse. Oh, my God. And by doing that, um, she embodied or exemplified what audience members have done um, at every performance that proceeded um, from that performance. Now we've... We've done 285 performances uh, for more than probably 60,000 veterans and service members at this time. Um, Wow. And um, she modeled for the audience what what we wanted to elicit. She quoted from memory without notes lines from the play and related them to her own life and then told a story that perhaps she had never told quite in that way in public, um, let alone in private. Right. And by doing that, she gave permission to other people in the audience to follow her lead. And so every spouse in the audience was just, you know, all the more, right. I think, empowered by what she said. And and then, of course, that wasn't the only theme that arose out of, out of the discussion and uh, all kinds of threads emerged um, about leadership, about what it, what it meant to be a leader with regard to invisible wounds, uh, about betrayal, um, about the relationship between generals and those below them, and all the things that are in the plays. Right. And um, and we'd scheduled a 45-minute discussion, and the discussion lasted close to three hours and had wow. to be cut off um, close to midnight, and people could have gone hours longer. And, and people did. Some people stuck around. It, it sounds like you found something that I think people who've been in and around theater have known for a long time, which is that the when you see something that touches you emotionally that way, it's like the playwright has given you words that let you 
say something that you may have tapped into and known but not had a way to communicate before? Yeah, I mean, I think it's on one hand that's true. I mean, I'm, obviously all the observations I have about it now are in retrospect that mm-hmm. that night, I, what I witnessed that night, I was barely able to apprehend. Mm-hmm. What I could tell was that um, the play was written in a code that even I, as a translator of Greek, did not understand, and I needed the audience to translate from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, yes, I had been a vehicle, and we had delivered these playwrights, this playwright's words, but in some ways they were the translators, not I. And um, that um, I also observed, you know, that there was a, a hierarchy and... Um, uh, that was being observed and also in some ways being transgressed mm-hmm. uh, that I didn't, I didn't understand. It was beyond my comprehension. And then it took you know, years to, to start to comprehend. Right. I, I think you're right. Theater gives uh, people who've experienced the extremities that theater sometimes describes a vocabulary for talking about it. Um, and yet the, one of the things I noticed that night, which was, still a bit of a mystery to me now, people stand up at our performances, mm-hmm. after the performances, people who've never heard of Sophocles, oh. and they speak in beautiful, uh, perfectly rhetorically structured monologues that have the prosody of a Sophoclean speech. Hmm. And these are people main times with no education right. and no exposure to the classics. And from my perspective as a director... As this thing evolved, it became clear that the performance began with the actors, but it only ended when the last person in the audience finished speaking. Mm. And that there were sometimes things that were said in the audience that were better than the play, more <laughs> profound, more, I mean, more, that the main event turned out to be the discussion and not the, not the classical text. The classical text created the conditions for this performance to happen in the audience. Right. Um, and so that's how I've come to see it. Um, so sometimes the plays seem to give the audience the words. Right. Um, sometimes the audience has even more profound words than, than, than the playwright. And I think if I had one word to define what we do and what we're delivering, it's permission. You know, how many different ways can we give you permission to, to tell your story? Right. Uh, in a permissive environment where for an hour and a half, two hours, the hierarchy dissolves and it's okay to bear witness to the truth of your experience, even if you're the lowest-ranking member of the community in which we're performing. That is, it is such a um, heartwarming, which is just far too little to express um, what it was like to watch some of the video. But also, uh, my my son, for his bar mitzvah project, he went and talked to wounded warriors about how how they wanted children to approach them because children are naturally curious, but then kids hold back because their parents say, Oh, you know, you don't, don't you want, don't want to be rude. And, um, and so we got to meet some really amazing people through that. And it was, it's just such a, a forgotten segment of our society. Brian, following up on that last question, um, you know, one of the things about, Athenian society as we know it in the, you know, 6th century, 5th century, uh, is that theater really was something that as much as war defined what it was to be Athenian, 
what do you think has happened historically that we've sort of lost that so that the, mm. the people who do plays are now very different people from those who fight wars? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a number of great similarities between our cultures, our civilizations, and then there are, uh, there are tremendous differences. Um, one of the biggest being that less than one-half a percent of our population served in the wars in the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for the Athenian citizens, um, uh, military service was compulsory and mandatory. And, um, you know, one can imagine that although the up to 17,000 people sitting in the theater of Dionysus when Sophocles' plays were at their peak um, were not all uh, veterans or top light matriculating into the army, but a majority of them would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, on the gravestone of Aeschylus, it doesn't say here lies the greatest playwright, the father of theater in the Western world. It, it written His grave references the fact that he fought in the Battle of Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophocles was elected general twice. Um, I, you know, one presumes that's not um, from writing plays, although the more mm-hmm. I spent time with Sophocles' plays, the more I think perhaps it was. Um, <laughs> in, that, in that, I had a, I was meeting with a four-star general uh, in the, the Kuwaiti Desert, of all places, a couple of years ago, and he had brought our plays all over the world, and he's one of our biggest supporters. Um, his name's Vincent Brooks, and I asked him why... He supported our work, and he said, as a general, he thought that theater, as a medium, uh, above all other media, could convey the spirit of an experience um, better than any other right. media. It's and that um, religious, transcendent, life-changing, yeah, everything is affected experience. Yeah, and I think you're right. It, it is. Um, I mean, this is a tangent, and I'll come back to Nathan's. Uh, question in a second, but I do think one of the things that we are able to deliver through Theater of War and through Sophocles' plays um, is a story that speaks to the moral and spiritual dimensions of war. Mm -hmm. And there is an aching, yearning desire on the part of those who've been affected by war, to experience the trauma of war, to grapple with um, the questions left in its wake, and many of them are, are of a spiritual nature. And then there is obviously a great disconnect in our clinical community um, between those clinicians who are in the field working with veterans and um, and the questions that they're, they're grapp- many of them are grappling with. Mm-hmm. Um, the plays speak to that. Um, Jonathan Shea and many other uh, mental health professionals who are working in the field have popularized this concept of moral injury. Mm. Um, I did something bad. I saw something bad. More importantly, someone betrayed my sense of what is right. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone usually in a position of power above me, and I felt complicit in it. Um, In some way, my belief in a universe that that, um, is centered on moral causality was obliterated. Mm -hmm. Um, The plays all speak to that experience. Um, and they speak to the questions left in its wake. And um, uh, so I think, yes, you know, we, we also know that the, um, uh, the Theater of Dionysus, the, the annual uh, theater, uh, city Dionysia, the, the um, spring festival at the center of Athens, you know, in which the entire city essentially shut down for three days. Um, the courts did not... Um, pre, you know, were closed. Uh, there, there are some scholars who seem to uh, indicate that um, even prisoners were released from jail 
on bond to see the plays. I mean, it's, you know, a huge portion, almost a third of the population of the city would be in that theater any given day of that festival. Um, and it was a religious uh, festival. Uh, it began with a religious mm-hmm. procession, the sacrifice of uh, animals, uh, a procession that was um, uh, executed or, or, or enacted by the Strata Goy, the ten generals uh, who processed. One of the rituals in in that um, in that uh, rite uh, involved the ceremonial bestowing of the armor of the war dead to the newly orphaned children of the war dead. So there isn't in that context a single person in the audience who would have missed the significance of Sophocles' Ajax bestowing his shield at the center of the play to his son Eurysakes. Eurysakes, or Eurysakes in Greek means you know, strong shield. He names his son after his shield. He gives his son his shield. And this all took place probably hours after we saw the orphaned children of Athens receiving their parents' armor. Um, there's no way to extract war and military service from Athenian drama, um, but we've done a very good job over the millennia of whitewashing the importance of the importance of war in the forging of some of this ancient civilization's greatest accomplishments, uh, for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. Ryan, um, but, I'm in, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Nathan, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and I mean, that's something that I always bring up to my students when I teach Lysistrata is that, you know, these guys who are dressed up as the women trying to stop the war were probably in the infantry just weeks before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and then people see um, the Trojan women as an anti-war play. It's been staged that way for Mm -hmm. for centuries. Um, But if if the dating of the play is correct, and, and all indications say that it is, um, the Melian massacre, um, in which the Athenians killed um, uh, the men and the sons uh, living on the island of Melos in this brutal massacre, um, this, this sort of essentially war, series of war crimes, preceded the play by months. Hmm. So what is it if the audience that had enacted those crimes... Those atrocities is the audience that's seeing the, the Trojan of War. The Trojan War can't. I mean, the, the Trojan women. It simply cannot be, you know, uh, a radical condemnation of of war or of war crimes. So if it isn't, then what is it? And you know, I don't have a clear answer. But that's like the Persians. That like the, the Persians is another great example where the the, um, the Athenians are able to humanize the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, or rehumanize the enemy in some yeah. way um, mm-hmm. by way of a play that contemplates, in, in a historical context, what it must have been like for the king of Persia and the queen to to uh, experience defeat at the hands of the of the Greeks. That's one of the things that I find so fascinating about the Greeks, just in general, is that that ability. It's like what we see in Shakespeare: that same ability to see difficult things through the eyes of a woman when it's a man who's writing or through an enemy or through the eyes of a Jew, you know, that there's, there's that, that moment that these great playwrights, um, hit, hit something that's just 
extraordinary and and usually painful. I mean, the, 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 of course, the irony or the, the, the tension is we're talking about one of the most misogynistic, mm-hmm. uh, xenophobic, <laughs> uh, racist cultures to have inhabited the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, in this, in, you know, in this form of Athenian drama, um, it's so strong, so powerful, a medium that in, light, in spite of that context we're able to see into the perspectives and lives of people who are deeply marginalized by that society. Right. Um, and I guess that, that's why your project fascinates me the way it does is because I think of sort of the official government stance on wars is that, you know, it's borderline propagandistic. You know, I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you just watch the news, I mean, if you say anything that questions the moral standing of anything that soldiers do, you are un-American, you don't support the troops, you're borderline treasonous, uh, yeah. which in my mind is such a, a vast departure from especially the Greeks, but even the medieval mindset on war in which, you know, various acts of war are part of their confessional manuals. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, what has been the response of military officials to this return, if you will, to a very self-critical, a very self-reflective response to the experience of warfare. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, this project isn't for everyone. Um, It requires, on the part of the leadership that brings it to its troops, uh, um, the knowledge that in order to create the conditions for really open dialogue and for healing, in some ways, leadership has to be comfortable with being criticized. Mm. And really great leaders know that. I think Sophocles knew that. Um, and that's why it's not, it's not coincidental that the ten Stratagoi were seated in the thrones in the front of the theater Dionysus only feet from the actors who would have been playing Ajax or Philoctetes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, not subversive East Village theater. Um, this is a mainline, you know, state, if not state-sponsored, at least state-endorsed theater. Um you know, Plato goes on to criticize the, the playwright, the, the uh, playwrights for inciting unhealthy emotions in the Athenian populace, and would ban all these dramatic poets from the Republic for that very reason. And, and, and it is a dangerous tool. We've seen theater used toward propaganda mm-hmm. and propagandic mm-hmm. purposes. You know, in World War II, there are plenty of examples um, uh, in which in which theater has been abused in that way. Um, but what we see by the uh, leadership in the U.S. military that brings us to their bases mm-hmm. um, and, and their posts or funds us to do what we do, which is on, um, you know, has been on an unprecedented scale, is uh, an understanding of the problem that they face um, being so massive and so critical to address that they're willing to, in some ways, take it on the chin at least for, you know, a two-hour period for each performance in service of this larger goal of having an open dialogue. We know the projects are working when the lowest-ranking member of the community in which we're performing speaks the truth of his or her experience in front of the highest-ranking. That sometimes can be the difference between a private and a four-star general sitting in the same audience. Um, Theater has the capacity to temporarily dissolve these hierarchies and create a space for something else to occur that experience where, where the general hears from the private, I think, is why the military 
sees our performances as such a powerful and important tool. Um, you're not going to get you're not going to get to that moment through a PowerPoint presentation, and you're not going to get and you're not going to get to it through a lecture. Um, and as you all know, as professors, you're going to get it. You're going to get to it through something more dialogic, where where people are not being told what to think, but they're being asked what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, and these plays are deeply, openly critical of leadership. Um, and and they and if there was one theme that runs through the two plays we perform the most, it's betrayal. Mm-hmm. But anyone who works in a complex hierarchy has experienced betrayal. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's worked, whether it's a college, a university, a prison, a hospital, um, a military unit, everyone understands what it's like to be betrayed by someone more powerful than he or she is. Uh, You absolutely gave me chills when you talked about having a private speak the truth to a a room that included four-star generals, because I think aside from working for the New York City Board of Education, which is more Kafka than anything else, the... um, the only other experience I ever had was working at Disney at feature animation and, and the thought of being honest in front of Jeffrey Katzenberg was that you, you know, just know. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, we have 14 projects now and we have a long time to talk about them all, but they all utilize this methodology that we've honed first with the military, then in prisons, then, you know, with end-of-life care, with hospice and palliative care audiences, then with addiction, you know, on and on. It's this notion that um, those who have skin in the game, those who have loved and lost and know the meaning of sacrifice, when they see their own experiences reflected in an ancient narrative, enacted with the passion of these incredible actors that we have mm-hmm. performing the plays, um, you know, they they are empowered. They are given permission to speak the truth of their experience. And, um, and what we've also seen, I mean, from everywhere from, um, you know, Tokyo with the Fukushima survivors we've been performing for this last year to Guantanamo Bay, where a four-star general made it mandatory for every guard at Gitmo to see our performances of uh, Prometheus Bound. Wow. Um, is that mm. it's permissive and it's okay to um, to speak the truth of your experience and to speak your opinion when responding to a play. Mm-hmm. That no one is punished. That it's a sort of non-attributional environment. And somehow people get away with saying things they would never be able to say in any other context. Mm-hmm. One of my, my favorite experiences, and the one that seems to bring the smile to my face more than any other, is when people get up and they openly ridicule the plays and the whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone might stand up and say, this is such a waste of time, but a bunch of big words, you know, expletives are flying. And uh, part of my response in smiling is that we have created in an institution in which it's not permissive to speak the truth of your experience or your opinion, <laughs> so permissive an environment that people are saying how much they hate theater of war. That's great because the next person who speaks who says how was the most profound experience of his life mm-hmm. – uh, you know, will be authenticated all the more because we've created that open environment. Right. Um, so that's you know that's part of how it works. Um, so when you when you were in school and and learning Greek, did you did you sit there at the food court at at lunch and think, 
God, you know, someday I'm going to translate these plays and do them for the military. <laughs> I didn't, but but I was nominated for the Rhodes uh, Scholarship at um, at uh, at Kenyon, and where I went to school. And mm-hmm. when I wrote my essay for the Rhodes when I was 21 or 20 or 21, um, I said something in that essay that still kind of haunts me today, which is I said that I was interested in bringing classical Greek drama to a much wider audience. And I believe that the classics spoke directly to the experiences of people from a wide array of perspectives and uh, life experiences um, and should not be relegated to the ivory tower. Hmm. And that that in some sort of burgeoning mission statement in that essay um, that, you know, that that has congealed and become the mission statement of the work. Um, which is to say people who have lived these experiences that are described by these ancient stories in some way have more to teach us than we to teach them uh, about what they signify yeah. today. Um, yeah. And that, that, I, I, that wasn't fully formed as a college senior, but it was, it was beginning. It was there. Um, I didn't know anyone in the military. Um, I came from Newport News, Virginia. I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, which is a military town. Um, Hampton Roads is surrounded with some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of most military-dense areas of the country. Right. My parents uh, were both psychologists. Um, and the first play I was ever in when I was eight years old was Euripides Medea. And if you mix those three <laughs> things together, uh, you, you basically doomed. get the project. You get the project. Yeah. yeah, there was kind of no choice for you, was there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I had talked to uh, Kristen, who who hooked us all up, and she she told me about your um, Bacchae. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So when I was at Kenyon and uh, studying Greek and Latin and uh, Hebrew uh, and, you know, really completely committed for a period to becoming an academic, I had an awakening that I didn't want to be an academic and that I wanted to pursue directing um, these plays. And my parents were academics, so I felt like I got a free pass there. And, um, and I basically, you know, had a kind of crisis of you know, direction and, 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 and thank goodness I had such wonderful advisors and people helping me at the time, but I was able to sort of garner enough support from a number of departments at Kenyan, classics, religion, sort of integrated humane studies program to, um, to build up enough of a budget to, for my senior project to, um, build an outdoor amphitheater on the slope of a hill in, in rural Ohio and staged my translation of the Bacchae um, in April of that year uh, as as my senior thesis. I mean, I, part of the thesis was writing a translation and right. and a commentary and, and and writing two translations, one that was literal and one that was you know more adaptive um, with the help of the actors that I was working with. But um, but for me, the the real aha, the real awakening was directing uh, that production. Um, and discovering in the process that that um, one of the things that was frustrating to me about my interest in Greek drama as a as a you know aspiring classicist was that um, that there were certain things that could not be translated into English um, simply on the page that mm-hmm. were clearly inherently in the Greek text. Right. 
Um, so what I discovered was that um, directing was a way of widening the translator's palette. Um, and then when I had dancers, actors, um, uh, lighting, sound, music, um, that these were other ways that one could convey, as the general mentioned, the spirit of an idea um, without it simply being uh, resting on the shoulders of, of language. And um, so at that point, I began to see that directing and translating, for at least for me, with regard to performed ancient texts, uh, was one and the same. But I see at that point, I started to see there was no distinction. In fact, that's what I was, a director, translator. And um, the experience doing the Bakai Kenyan was, you know, a wonderful beginning of something I've been cultivating ever since. Um, right. I remember you know, people sitting out on this um, wet uh, grass on the side of this hill where we had uh, built this you know, makeshift amphitheater and um, in the freezing cold uh, while with the rain sort of threatening the entire night and winds whipping up and, and drinking coffee and drinking wine and, you know, re- calling and responding to the actors who were performing sort of at the, you know, with everything they had. And um, after the first performance, going back to my apartment in the center of Gambier, Ohio, um, which was above the uh, supermarket, and at three in the morning, hearing the uh, sort of late night revelers returning from uh, parties that night, uh, <laughs> chanting the Olulu gays, the the uh, ecstatic shouts of the Bakens from my production of the Bakai. Wow! Um, and I thought, wow, you know. <laughs> If some of these some of these individuals have probably wasted many, much of their time at Kenyon, but by coming to this performance, they've in some ways been educated about something that wouldn't have they wouldn't have come into contact otherwise. Right. It was great. It was fantastic. And I, I thought, um, you know, from that point on, there was sort of no, no turning back. We actually conscripted the local hippie drum circle <laughs> uh, to perfect. be the, to be the musicians. We had a, a guy who played didgeridoo that actually um, was in put in jail the night before the opening performance for some drug possession charge. But, um, and Dionysus, the guy, the actor playing Dionysus locked his keys in the Deus Ex Machina, which was a Buick, um, because he was, he was stoned the night of the first performance. And, um, and it was kind of a mess, but in some ways that was the spirit of this, you know, this production. Uh-huh. And you could feel the rawness of it. I, and yes, there was such loud drumming that the people who lived within a you know half mile or a mile of the uh, rehearsal area uh, probably had to withstand uh, more drumming than than uh, is legally allowed in most parts of the country. But <laughs> did, did you pay uh, the cast and and uh, crew with wine? They were all students, so for, you know it was it was. Uh, and also, they weren't drama students because I was sort of an outsider mm-hmm. and I had come to directing late in college and I wasn't part of that scene, um, I ended up conscripting also a lot of people from majors that um, were sort of more related to classics. So we had, you know, classics religion majors. We had um, a lot of anthropology majors in the cast, wow. a, few, a few drama students. But it was kind of a multidisciplinary effort. Um, but the hippie drum circle was a, was an inspired choice um, because uh, they, they brought an energy to it that was really fantastic. I, I did have a chance to see, I don't know if you were in New York at the time, but after 9-11, <clears throat> the uh, Chicago school, I can't remember the name of the professor who directed it, but they did um, Metamorphoses. 
on stage around the big rectangular pool. Right, Mary Zimmerman. That yes, thank you. And I don't know about about what happened um, with your Bacchae or or at the Theater of War, but I have a feeling that that experience is close, especially after going through something like nine eleven. To have that um, having ancient words speak for you is such a yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, I didn't see the production in light of nine eleven. I think I've seen it before. Yeah, I'd mm. seen it earlier. I think than that. But the um, I think I saw it in Berkeley, California. But the um, the um, uh, the, um, the yeah. I think I think when you're dealing with a community that's experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, as I said, have 14 projects at this point. We have many communities of trauma, almost like concentric circles, all yeah. overlapping in different ways, um, or radiating out from the same point of impact. Um, that when they, when the audience that's experienced trauma as a community sees or hears its own experiences articulated in something that's ancient, um, I think there's a very clear public health message that's being delivered. And you probably, if you've read or seen anything that, about what we do, mm-hmm. um, you've seen that I say this at every performance. But as a benediction at the end of every performance uh, across our projects, I say, you know, if we came here to deliver one message from this ancient playwright, it's simply that, you know, you're not alone across time. Mm-hmm. And what I see in our audiences night after night is a palpable sense of relief to discover that the experiences that they've had um, – mm-hmm are not unique uh, in the sense that for thousands of years other human beings have been struggling with those experiences and the questions that are left behind after those experiences are had. And, and um, so I imagine the, any classical text performed for a community that has skin in the game mm-hmm. uh, will result in a similar response, yeah. um, which is you know, all the reason why these plays, these texts are so essential and important um, uh, now, uh, I mean, it's one of many reasons why we should care about them and, and why they matter. Well, and I think Nathan and I both have the um, come come from the position that the when you get your whether it's students or audiences, when you get them the good stuff and make it accessible, people people know when it's good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there's definitely that. I think people people. Um, uh, you know, that the quote about Steve Jobs, you know, he wanted to design things that people didn't know they needed or wanted. <laughs> um, I feel that way about the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, that that once people have a taste for uh, how profound these texts are mm-hmm. in this direct and efficacious way, um, then uh, they develop a real appetite for more. Well, and it's, it's lovely to see that you've been able to tap a community who, um, I think stereotypically yeah. would, would not be necessarily the people who would show up at Nathan's university or listen to a classical literature podcast or <laughs> go off and see Greek, Greek drama, or even feel that, uh, funding a liberal arts education was particularly important. Yeah, no, that's true. And one of the great virtues of the project uh, has been bringing 
very diverse audiences together. So we don't simply perform on military bases anymore, and we're currently touring 25 cities under a foundation grant where we're, we're you know, the, the objective is to bring you know, civilians and military audiences together. Mm. Um, and you will see and hear in these audiences wide-ranging opinions, perspectives, everything from anti-war activists to, you know, to generals in uniform. But also you'll see a wide range of people um, with different ways into the classics. You'll certainly see a lot of professors and academics or people who've loved the classics showing up for that reason. And then you'll see other people showing up because they see they want to be participants in helping veterans to heal or they're, they're needing to heal themselves. But more diverse, the better in some ways, because um, what's achieved then is, is, is pretty unique, which is people sitting together and, mm-hmm. and, and bearing witness to the truth of their experiences um, shoulder to shoulder in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, may never have happened at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that academics care so much about the classics, mm-hmm. um, and I would never denigrate that in any way um, by any of the rhetoric around bringing it to wider audiences. Um, I just believe that more people should care about them yeah. and, mm-hmm. and that they shouldn't be simply the province of career academics. Yeah. Um, and... Um, you know, like any exegetical tradition where we keep going back to texts for their wisdom, um, you know, I think we've seen moments where Americans and Europeans have been really interested in the classical world. Um, I think this is an interesting moment mm-hmm. um, where the sort of cataclysmic um, uh, proportions of what's happening in the world, uh, for better or for worse, um, I've created the conditions for a great deal more interest in, in what these these texts can tell us about what it means to be human. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so there's no shortage of work, fortunately, for the company, um, uh, but, but but unfortunately for the world. Did you did you have when you were you didn't just version these plays? You actually, uh, I think Nathan was offline. You you tran- did a literal translation and then kind of a spirit of the literal. Mm, so, I mean, look, if you're looking for a crib to use in class, I wouldn't suggest reading using my text. But that being said, I, you know, I start from the Greek for, from, and Latin for all the texts we use that are ancient, mm-hmm. uh, Greek or Roman text. I, I'm interested in, in translations, and I consider what I do translation, that uh, are, um, you know, have one foot uh, clearly planted in the ancient original. Mm-hmm. Um, but are attempting to find ways to bridge that original with language, uh, with a contemporary audience, with language and idioms that speak to that audience. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a reason that Shakespeare presided over the publication of his sonnets meticulously, but uh, was not interested or seemingly not interested in the publication of his plays. Mm. Um, and that's, that's that I'm sure he knew and we know that, that the ancient, that, that ancient and contemporary plays are all simply blueprints for performance. And so, um, the best translators from my perspective don't necessarily have the best Greek or Latin of the ancient text of plays. And I Mm. won't say this about any other type of ancient text. The best translators, from my perspective, are people of the theater who have some sense of the ancient original. So my heroes are people like Ted Hughes and Ezra Pound and, you know, um, you know, a number of others that are, uh, of the theater. Brian, did you read, um, oh, what's his name? Hofstadter's, um, Le Tombeau de Moreau, where he did a whole big 
fat 14-point font book on translating a, I don't know, a 14th century French poem, Montmignon, Je vous donne, and it went on from there. And he, he handed the poem with a, a literal translation of each word in French into English, and he handed that to, I don't know, 100 people, rap artists, six-year-olds, professors, people on the street. And, and it was extraordinary looking at how uh, some people went for the literal, and some people went for the spirit, and some people went for the rhythm, and some people went for rhyme. And his, his final conclusion, which I used to talk to my students about when we did Dante's Inferno, was you can, you can pick two. You can do rhythm and you can do rhyme, or you can do meter and you can do spirit. But uh, even Dorothy Sayers, when she tried to do Dante's Inferno, came away and went, well, I guess it's okay. You know, I, I heard I heard um, him on Radio Lab. I think even last night it was broadcast. Where, where they, but um, where I heard about that story, and I think you know it speaks directly to what I'm interested in. I mean, I think to, if you're interested in studying these plays, um, you should read a variety of translations if you don't know the language. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are trying to create a text that will work in the theater, then there are certain things you're going to privilege in the translation and the adaptation. Um, for me, you'll see in my tra- my translations are going to be published um, next year by Vintage. Oh, congratulations! Uh, and, oh, thanks. So I have two books coming out next fall. Uh, one is called The Theater of War: What Ancient Tragedies Can Teach Us Today, and that's being published by Knopf. The launch date is September eighth, twenty fifteen. You can find it on Amazon already. Just that little author page. And Vintage, which is the sister company of Knopf, is simultaneously releasing four of my translations in a in a volume called All That You've Seen Here Is God. You must email uh, us when these are slated. To I will. Out. We'll we'll mm-hmm. you for you. That would be really great. Um, I certainly will, and I'll let I'll let the publicist know about this podcast Absolutely. as well. So, um, but um, it's sort of the next phase booster rocket of you know this this movement, <laughs> which is uh, to really throw the gauntlet and you know on the ground and say you know this is. Um, here is a, in, a, in literary form is, I, I hope, a translation of the experience that people are having in theaters. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a hard, mm-hmm. hard sell, but um, I think people uh, will find it engaging. And um, those translations uh, that are being published, um, you know, I, I, I hope will have a theatrical life um, of a few decades, <laughs> right? But oh, but, by the, but but in a few decades, I think they'll need to be updated. Um, I, you know, what I'm searching for. There are certain things that are very literal in the translation, mm. um, and then there are certain idioms that I've completely thrown out in service of idioms that I think will work better. Mm. Um, a great example of that is in Ajax. Um, this is the most radical of the translation, the acts of translation that I can cite. But in Ajax. Um, Tecmessa's, uh, Ajax's wife, Tecmessa, um, refers to him as uh, sitting inside the tent, um, his mind um, like a sea on a tempestuous, uh, like a, excuse me, his mind like a ship on a tempestuous sea. Mm. And I throw out the nautical metaphors. There are a number of nautical metaphors in the play. Um, mm-hmm. The tragedians are very fond of these nautical met- metaphors, and uh, being a large naval power, it's not um, coincidental. Um, 
but uh, and and in service of reaching this particular audience, uh, you know, my translation reads: He sits inside the tent, shell shocked, glazed over, gazing into oblivion. He has the thousand yard stare. I heard that on one of the now, videos. Mm-hmm. Love yeah. that. So some so some people will say that's more Dory's than Sophocles, and if that's the case, you know, guilty is charged. But the mm. the objective of a translation like that mm-hmm. is to take the spirit of an idiom mm-hmm. or a metaphor and reconnect it synaptically mm-hmm. to something that's direct for the audience that's receiving it. Yeah. So there's no so there's no translation on the part of the audience. Um, Robert Bly defines a metaphor as jumping from one part of the brain to the other. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel that way about translation. It has to be direct. Mm-hmm. It has to feel direct. And mm-hmm. if an idiom isn't working in our language, in our time, it has to be cast aside. In, in something yeah. that's performed. For yeah. me, I, I can't I can't comment on other types of translation. Yeah. And then finally, I'll say you know for me, a translation is simply a shadow. You know, it's it's a shadow that's cast with a light using an original. Uh, and um, how platonic of you. And uh, and <laughs> and yet, some of the as you know, I'm sure uh, some of the translations that have been written in English of ancient Greek texts are so great or so transcendent that they're, if not better than the original, as at least as significant as the original. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, while Alexander Pope's Iliad may not be for everyone, um, you know, that's an example of a translation where it's you know, as rigorous and as powerful a, a, a poetic text as the Homeric original, if not more. Um, and I think that's what we should aspire toward as yeah. translators. Well, and this is one of the frustrations that I've experienced doing a, a podcast is I, I'll get requests. I mean, it, as often as I get requests to do Game of Thrones on the podcast, which I have to explain, it's not public domain. Uh, the, the, I get requests for uh, Russian literature or for Dante's Inferno, which I would love mm-hmm. to do. And my problem is finding a public domain translation that can speak Mm-hmm. To, to today's audiences, and most of the Victorian translations that I found are very frustrating. Yeah. These mm-hmm. I mean, are all so ancient I mean, for us. Yeah, I mean, Kristen can, I think, speak to this, too. We were in Greek class together at Kenyon, and we were learning from the Liddell and Scott lexicon what certain words meant. Mm-hmm. This is a lexicon that took several generations of a family to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I would... I would um, I would argue that the way we learn ancient languages is infused with Victorian idiom and syntax. Mm. Um, that it's you know our instruction, our pedagogy is so steeped in um, in a methodology that was codified in that time. Mm. Mm-hmm. That to break through that crust mm-hmm. uh, of language, you in some ways have to step away from it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, at the risk of obviously making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes may be viewed as egregious. I still think um, it's a sense it's, it, it, for performed text where the stakes are high, mm-hmm. where the stakes for our work are that some people sitting in that audience may make life decisions that ultimately save lives, mm-hmm. their own or others, predicated on what they hear, what speaks to them. We cannot afford to be mired in Victorian syntax. No. Um, and unfortunately, most translations, even contemporary translations, are, I would suggest, because the way those translators learned the ancient languages mm-hmm. um, is inextricably 
steeped in that era, is, is linked yeah. to that era. I'm curious to hear you take the next step in that argument. Uh, if you were to propose some significant changes in ancient language pedagogy, I mean, what direction would you take that enterprise? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by the suggestion, and I, I'd yeah. like to hear what it might boy, look I mean, like. Yeah, boy, I stepped out on a limb here. You know, I don't, um, <laughs> I don't claim to have any expertise in, in the pedagogy with regard to teaching Greek or Latin. I mean, at best, I have a more than a schoolboy's Greek and Latin. I mean, I certainly have an undergraduate, maybe graduate-level proficiency in Greek. Um, but I'm no expert in, in how these – I've never taught ancient Greek, so I can't speak to that. But I, I you know, how um, – I think – more, I'm, I'm more interested, less interested in pedagogy, although I think that um, uh, if, if students were made aware of the history of the grammars and lexicons <laughs> from which they were learning, mm. if there was mm. at least that level of awareness, um, uh, then, then perhaps some life could be breathed into these dead languages at an earlier stage mm. of their development. Um, you know, I, I have great reverence for Liddell and Scott and for some of the grammars that I worked with and, and, and adore them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like I, I certainly wouldn't make the argument to throw any of those uh, those tools out. But when it comes to artistic expression, when it comes to reaching wider audiences with these texts, when it comes to making a larger argument, a broader argument as to why they should be alive and and studied and enjoyed and experienced now, I do think, pedagogy aside, that uh, mm-hmm. that we need to open them up a bit. And, and, and I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that a new lexicon needs to be written. Um, but, it, but it would be interesting. I've never seen anyone write or talk about it um, to, um, to explore the possibility of updating uh, you know, some of those texts. Well, I'm looking, I'm also looking at the dates of, of when it was, um, originally published and up through the sixth edition in, in 1869. And this was one of the, the big shocks for me in going back and redoing some Victorian literature, um, as a, as a presentation to people who weren't in school, to, to people who are just listening to the books because they figure they probably should have read Dracula at some point. And so we do Dracula. And, you know, it's shocking when you get into Dracula and go, okay, 1890, that world has more in common with our world than it did with Charlotte Bronte's world. Because it's all down to train schedules, boat schedules, and telegraphs. The only reason they get Dracula is because of telegraphs. And the trains ran on time least in England, not so much in Slovakia. But the but the the world that the Liddell Scott and I love that it's Alice Liddell's dad. Um because <laughs> we did Alice in Wonderland too. Um it, it's amazing that more of their world didn't creep into what they were doing the same way that when when you were looking at the the maritime idioms and and greater metaphors that 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 didn't happen for them as well and i i wonder what that i mean you said it had something to do with the way that they were learning it which i imagine was you know repetition and rewrite in your own script your own, your own handwriting what you know aristotle and 
everybody would have written down, and that would restrict you somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously, learning Greek at, or, uh, is, a, is is learning a structure that is very alien to English. Um, I mean, there's certain things we recognize in it, um, but there's so much about the morphology and the complexity of the language that is alien. Mm. Uh, it's learning a syntax and a grammar that I think expands a student's notion of what language is and how it works. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and part of that can't, I don't think, my, I'm, again, I'm no expert, but it seems like part of that is not something we can just update. That's, mm. that's that that part, right? But uh, but I think a sense of um, I don't know. Someone needs to write a book. It's not me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well. Of course, the reason I'm curious is that I just now came from teaching an old English class where I'm teaching yeah. undergrads to translate, and part of what I do is I ask them, you know, with their larger translation projects, to submit a mini essay explaining what philosophy of translation animated yeah. the choices they made. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it's something that's definitely on my mind, what you were just yeah. describing. Yeah. So yeah. I was just curious to hear kind of your approach to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I haven't taught students in that context. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm less interested in what things mean uh, when it comes to translation and much more interested in what they do. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and so my approach with these plays and for these particular audiences is with a very specific objective. Um, that they're going to reach a wider audience and they seem to appeal to a wider audience is wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in some ways, you know, a real delight and it's been part of the ancillary mission all along. Um, but the more I worked on these translations that are about to be published, um, it was with a specific audience in mind. So it was do what they do in terms of how people like, for instance, um, uh, to take into consideration consideration if you were translating Chaucer, that you're writing humor, that there there is meaning, but there is also humor. Sure, that's a great example. I think yeah, I think uh, I mean Chaucer presumably you know is recited so and had an audience and i'm specifically interested in theatrical texts and what because i think they're those can be more easily seen through this rubric or lens Mm -hmm. um i'm not convinced that tragedies signify or mean anything Mm -hmm. but i am more and more convinced that they were designed to do something very specific Mm -hmm. and that they're like an ancient Mm -hmm. sort of hard drive that one plugged in to the right audience when the connections are um clear uh, and direct, right. they do exactly what they were designed to do initially. Well, they provide a release valve for building pressure, I think, too. The especially with your audience, that the um, the permission to feel uh, what they what your audience may have been feeling, and not feeling that they had permission to feel it. Yeah, I mean, it's not adaptive in war to. Be weeping while you're fighting, or when the right. when the tor- when the torpedo's heading at the ship, there has to be a hierarchy of uh, right. command structure in order for people to survive. Um, but one of the other things that you know divides us from I think this ancient culture that developed the Athenian drama and our own is that um, we have less sanctioned um, uh, communal. Um, Moments where it is permissive, where it is possible for people to feel in this way. Um, 
the most common response I hear, I, I ask a series of four or five questions that are basically the same questions to every audience mm-hmm. um, with variation on who's in the audience, but, you know, calibrated slightly differently. But one of the core questions that never changes is, is um, now you've seen these scenes from Sophocles, Ajax, or Philoctetes, or both, and you know the plays were written by someone who was elected general in the 5th century and performed for as many as 17,000 citizen soldiers in a century in which the Athenians saw nearly 80 years of war. What do you think this guy was up to, uh, this Sophocles, when he wrote these plays? What was he trying to do? What was his objective? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the answer that comes back most commonly uh, from military audiences, especially lower enlisted grunts who've mm-hmm. been on the front lines, I heard it first in a um, U.S. Uh, Army base in Germany, an artillery base. Um, a lower enlisted soldier raised his hand and said, uh, I think he wrote these plays to boost morale. Mm-hmm. And my response is always, you know, well, what's morale boosting about watching a great warrior lose his best friend and come unraveled and uh, take his own life? And um, the answer that came back that day, and it comes back all the time, is you know, because it's the truth. And mm-hmm. because we're, we're all sitting here together mm-hmm. acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. It's not being whitewashed. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's the truth, and um, I get the sense that this thing the general said about theater conveying the spirit of an experience. I don't get the sense that Sophocles is saying something propagandistic. I don't think he's saying something anti-war. I think he's saying this is mm-hmm. this experience happened or happens, mm-hmm. um, and by virtue of that, the, by doing that in a truthful and poetic way. Um, that that has an effect on the audience. It's I think, you know, physiological, spiritual, neurochemical, whatever you want to call it. Right. It changes people. It it uh, opens them. Um, you know, in the apocryphal, highly dubious um, biography of Aeschylus um, <laughs> from in the Alexandrian period, um, there's a story of. The moment when the Furies came to the stage in the Humanities, uh, mm-hmm. in the Oresteia, and mm-hmm. women in the audience um, miscarried children, aborted children, because right. uh, they were so afraid of the Furies. Right. Well, of course, there's nothing to be gleaned from that about the historical experience of the reception of Athenian drama. Right. Uh, but because most <laughs> of these biographies were written simply from just inference from the text themselves. Right. But I think there's wisdom in that description, in that. It portrays the direct efficacious power of tragedy to do something mm. to to the audience. Mm-hmm. I don't want women to miscarry. I mean, obviously, <laughs> that's not. But I want. But I want something that's on that order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I want something on that order of magnitude to occur. Right. Um, and that sounds counterintuitive when you're talking about helping people to be healed. Mm-mm. Um, but, no, but what I but what I see in these audiences, you know, where some psychologists feared in the beginning that we would re-traumatize mm-hmm. audiences at these places, mm-hmm. is again an overwhelming sense of relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more extreme the performances are, uh, the more permission we've given the audience to meet us halfway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if an actress goes there you know, projectile crying into the audience from the table. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I know that 
the audience will meet us halfway. And, um, and so that's what I'm looking for. Is the translation working? Is it, is it, mm-hmm. RP, you know, is it, is it achieving the effect that I desire, um, which is to move the needle? Did you uh, change, did you go back and update your translations after you went to Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq? And- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't been to Afghanistan. That's, that's one of the places we haven't been, but, and we won't make it probably, but, um, that's probably fortunate because, um, in some ways <laughs> opening people up while they're in a combat zone is not necessarily a good idea, but, um, but, um, but we have performed in Kuwait and, and in Qatar and been three times and probably about to go a fourth time um, with a sexual assault project that we developed for the U.S. Army. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, um, uh, the, the, in the, the responses that we see, um, uh, from people in in these military settings is um, uh, is typically um, you know uh, emotional on, a, on an order of magnitude that n- no commercial or non nonprofit theater going audience has ever experienced. Um, right. And it affects mm-hmm. your your use of language as you and and it affects my use of language and. So here's the thing. Um, after each performance, um, the actors um, stick around, and the audience lines up to go up and talk to them. Mm. And they go up and they say things like, that line you said, you know, X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. that spoke to me. That, that was my story, and here it is. And they lay out something just harrowing. And, you know, and the actor will never say the line again the same way. Okay. And the actor mm-hmm. may have tossed that line off um, mm-hmm. completely, not understanding its significance until the audience member lined up to say it. And so there is a true reciprocity between the performances, even over the span of a single day, where we'll, we'll do as many as four performances on a military installation over the span of a day. From like, So we'll be at Fort Carson, Colorado, um, on January 28th. Excuse me, 26th, uh, and we'll do four performances from eight in the morning till eight at night. And over the span of that day, the, the, the performances will change based on what people say during the discussion and what people say of the actors and to me afterwards. Hmm. Um, in that sense, it's a living, breathing, sort of active translation mm-hmm. uh, as we learn from audiences iteratively and and continue to sort of you know refine. In the you know in the early days we would get a lot of direct feedback from audiences. I think this line should say X. You know, this one fell short for hmm. me. Um, and I did make a lot of changes and have made a lot of changes. Or, you know, uh, you know that, that line, the title of, um, of the collection of uh, translations coming out next fall, all that you've seen here is God. Well, in the, in the Greek, it's, you know, all that you've seen here is, uh, all that you have seen here today is, is Zeus or Dios. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's much more powerful. It, the lines preceding it are something like, you know, my friends, you've seen strange, terrible things here today, new, find, new forms of torture, immeasurable pain, all that you've seen here is God. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, for a contemporary audience, saying all that you've seen here is Zeus means pretty much nothing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But, it's but what it's, they used to a, think about. Right. But it's a massive provocation. 
on the part of the translator and the performers to say, all of this misery that you've seen here, mm-hmm. all, and also these moments in, of transcendence, everything you've seen at the extremity of human experience portrayed here in these plays, that's God. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a line, for instance, that I, I refined after numerous performances mm-hmm. for uh, audiences that were uh, geared around talking about end-of-life care. Well, and that's the God was in this place, and I, I did not know. That's the that's the wrestling with wrestling with angels, and 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 uh, have, having a moment that says it wasn't wasted. It wasn't a wasted effort. What you went through, absolutely. And I, I you know, when I asked, uh, there's a question. In the end of life, we performed the last scene of uh, Sophocles' Trachinii, the one of Trachus, mm-hmm. in which Heracles is poisoned by his wife Deonera unwittingly, thinking that it's a love potion when he steps out with a younger woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he discovers as he's dying that his wife you know, poisoned him, and, and he's going to die, and he's dying from the centaur's blood that she thought was a love potion. And he knows he has minutes to live, and he's experiencing this excruciating pain and... Um, and then he asks his son, Hillis, in the Greek, to be his doctor uh, and to burn him alive, to, to be his therapeut, his therapeut, his, um, excuse me, his iater, from iatros, to be his um, physician by ending his life. And, um, and at, the end of the play, at the end of the play, the chorus then says those lines I just referenced earlier. Uh, at, uh, it may be a later edition. It may not have been Sophocles. Regardless, it's in the... It's, it's in many editions of the Greek text. Um, and so I ask audiences across the country, well, what do you make of that last line? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I've tightened a little bit, you know, into this provocation. All that you've seen here is God. And the response varies um, from region to region, community to community, as unsurprisingly, um, uh, you know, in the Northeast, people don't want to touch it. <laughs> you know, and... and uh, and uh, in the Midwest, when performing for at a children's hospital mm-hmm. for NICU staff, mm-hmm. the response was, "If I didn't find God in um, and the divine in my work, I would never be able to come back to work each day." Yeah, and that and mm-hmm. that was and that was after um, you know people had described diseases and. Uh, forms of pain that children were experiencing, um, and they helplessly had to watch um, that, you know, challenge their capacity to to, to do their work. And um, so, you know, I, I don't know where we got to this, but needless to say, the, oh yeah, because it was an act of translation that tightened the line that made it have more of a direct impact. But I, but in learning from audiences what works, mm-hmm. I developed these translations. And tighten them over the years. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that you have twelve. You have a bunch of fourteen projects. Fourteen projects, and you. So there's the the theater of war. There's you said the sexual assault. Oh, sexual assault project is a recent project. It, it's a it's called tape. It's actually a contemporary play um, by an off Broadway playwright or Broadway play, playwright named Stephen Belber. Um, we we now run the gamut in the text we use, mm. um, from you know Homer, Homer's Iliad to contemporary plays. Um, but for every audience, no matter what the issue, there has to be distance. Mm-hmm. 
So we did Streetcar Named Desire as a sec, um, domestic violence project, mm-hmm. uh, but we did it in Maine. We wouldn't do Streetcar Named Desire in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and the distance is enough that an audience, if it's cultural or it's temporal, um, an audience is able to feel unburdened. They're not threatened. You're not saying to them, this is you. You're simply asking them to reflect, what do you see of yourself in this story that isn't written about you mm-hmm. specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, um, in the beginning, we went looking for audiences. I, I had the Greek text that I translated, and I went looking for audiences, believing the text might have something to say. So first there was Theater of War, then Prometheus in prison, mm-hmm. then the End of Life Project. Um, but then audiences began calling us. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you, you know, a, a tornado has struck Joplin, Missouri, uh, killing 161 people. We know about your work in prisons in Missouri. Would you... Is there a text that could help this community on the one-year anniversary of the tornado? Mm-hmm. And that's when I proposed that we do readings from Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Book of Job, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. we did in a megachurch uh, mm-hmm. for 2,200 fundamentalist Christians on the one-year anniversary of the um, of the tornado. And we had uh, Paul Gian- we had Paul Giamatti playing Job and Dave- David Stertheren playing God. And there's a video, there's a documentary of this, which can be found online. It's not on the website, but um, I think it's called Storytelling After the Storm um, that PopTech did. You can see some of the performances there. But um, it was extremely well-received. Um, we did a performance in a secular and, and, uh, and uh, environment that night after the church mm-hmm. at a high school, and the, the conversations were radically different, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the concerns that people came with were radically different. But I think what Job speaks to above all and we've now performed, you know, as far as, you know, Japan for the Fukushima survivors with the Book of Job. Um, you know, I think what the text speaks to um, for uh, for all human beings, regardless of their beliefs, yeah. uh, is the experience of having a trauma, uh, especially a natural disaster, mm-hmm. uh, obliterate your faith in a universe with moral causality. Mm-hmm. And um, and that even if you didn't believe that the universe had moral causality, <laughs> uh, there's something profoundly disappointing, I think, for a lot of these communities and, and audience members about experiencing this, the, the seemingly indiscriminate nature of destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and Joe asked huge questions about that. And, um, and the community in Joplin a year later was ready to grapple with them as a community. That's marvelous. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a marvelous choice. Um, and it worked out really well. Then after that, the, or I think maybe before that, but somewhere around that range, the NIH approached us. You know, do you have a text that can help us um, confront primary care physicians with their own prejudices against patients who are struggling with a disease of addiction? Oh. Um, so we propose, I mean, it's, it's a derivative of a Greek text, but um, Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill, Act mm-hmm. 3, and we started touring that with, um, you know, actresses like Blythe Danner and Diane Weist and Deborah Winger and Kat, Kat, Katie Irby and Kathy Chalfont playing Mary Tyrone for audiences of up to a thousand doctors at a time. Wow! And, and um, mm. that's what the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Addiction, and that resulted in these really powerful conversations. Where, in some ways, we got to the same set of questions that any of the Greek texts would have uh, delivered, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that there is an aspect of Mary's addiction and her struggle with addiction that is of a spiritual nature. It's a crisis of faith more than anything else. Mm-hmm. 
um, mm-hmm. that um, contemporary physicians have no point of reference for. <laughs> right. Well, and that strikes me as, as something particularly Greek about your project, too, because, I mean, you keep detailing these moments where you translate in ways that the philologists wouldn't think of, and you propose therapeutic modes that the psychiatrists wouldn't think of, and you bring truth-telling to post-war situations that politicians wouldn't think of. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think of that as something peculiarly Greek that you're bringing to these life situations that perhaps we've lost in yeah. the West? Or, I mean, do you think of this yeah. as something more modern? No, I think, I think that the, the, the technology of tragedy, of theater, and tragedy in particular, mm-hmm. is the communalization of trauma. It, that's mm-hmm. the objective. It's not, hey, you veteran shoulder the pollution of war individually. It's we're going to come together and we're going to acknowledge the pollution. We're going to shoulder it as a community. And, and mm-hmm. this, this, this performance, the more uncomfortable it is, the more shocking it is, the more unsettling it is, the better it is going to be at eliciting that communal response. Mm. Um, right, right. And it strikes me as very democratic, too, because you, totally. you, you bring these people this idea that you don't have to be an expert in order to speak the truth about this. Mm. No, you and honestly, an I mean, that, that's what experience. I think is so cool about your project. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, it is de- it's democratic, and I think that I, I would pr- venture to guess that there's that the technology of Athenian drama, which has been had such a profound influence on you know theater in the Western world in particular, um, and it's kind of unlike anything else that exists. Um, you know, it's not coincidental that it evolved, it, that it derived and evolved from one of the most high, highly militarized democracies to inhabit the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jonathan Shea in this really nice article in Didascalia um, um, entitled um, The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Needs of Democracy. Mm-hmm. Ar- argues that ancient Greek Athenian drama may not have originated. I mean, we can do all kinds of arguments about how it was born, um, but it certainly evolved uh, to meet specific needs within that culture, within that civilization. And one of the primary ones was was um, was military. But I, the other reason that I think our end of life project is tapping into the same ethos is that. Uh, if we believe Thucydides, and I think we probably should, then uh, a plague um, in the late 5th century wiped out nearly a third of the Athenian population. There isn't a person in that audience, uh, for at least for the performance of Philoctetes, which was 406, who would be a stranger to the screams and moans of a character, of an individual who was um, in the throes of a terrible uh, terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if they if they weren't in, intimately uh, acquainted with them from having been on the battlefield, right. um, and yes, I think there's a, there's a whole there are books written about this, I'm, but I'm no expert. But you know the direct <laughs> lineage of Greek drama down to O'Neill and Williams and some and Miller, you know, um, there's there's this wonderful um, apocryphal, but I think probably true story of a, um, a member of the Provincetown Players, the theater company in New York um, that O'Neill was a member of in the 20s and 30s, um, that named Jeb Cook, who was a classicist, uh, who introduced O'Neill to the Greeks. And hmm. s- 
schooled him in Aeschylean and Sophoclean drama and was the principal conduit through which the Greeks entered into American tragedy. Mm. And, um, and, uh, and then, as the story goes, and again, apocryphal, but um, after leaving the Provincetown players, he moved back to Greece he, um, and um, was, uh, and apparently was principally responsible for the establishment, uh, reestablishment of theatrical performance in Delphi in like 1940 or 1941, um, after, you know, centuries of dormancy. Um, and then and sort of then disappeared into apparently the countryside, working as a farmer or goat herd, never to be heard from again. If if the story is true, then this individual Jeb Cook, you know, was a sort of almost singular conduit through which Greek drama both emerged in American playwriting um, and also reemerged in the in the Greek world. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, um, uh, but uh, yes, the. The, the technology of tragedy, from my perspective, uh, is a democratic one. Um, mm-hmm. And I am less interested as a director in empathy. I'm not exactly sure anymore if that should be the objective. Um, I'm much more interested in shared discomfort. <laughs> And one of the note, and and one of the notes I give to actors like Paul Giamatti, and if you look up some of the videos of him doing Philoctetes, there's an NPR site that has a video from the, um, the All Things Considered piece um, that was done in 2008. There's also the video I mentioned before of him playing Job in the megachurch in Joplin. Um, one of the notes I give an actor like Paul Giamatti before he goes on stage is I whisper it in his ear, make them wish they'd never come. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a lot of our audiences are mandatorily made to come or compelled to come in a way where it would be socially uh, difficult for them to leave. Mm-hmm. And that sense of being trapped, that sense of being in a room <laughs> that can't go anywhere, and being made so uncomfortable by the performance that they that they that they are on the border of standing up and getting out. If you can bring an audience to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, then no matter what their political beliefs or their religious beliefs or their life experiences, no matter what divides them, at least they have that in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all can sense in each other that they're having a very similar reaction. And I think, this is now me getting my soapbox, but I think if you want to have a town hall discussion in our country about something that divides us or in a democracy, about something that divides us. Start with a portrayal of human suffering first, and then have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I thought it was through empathy that the connections were made, that people didn't end up screaming at each other, and they found all this common ground. Now I think it's through shared discomfort. Um, mm. uh, that we can all have this response. So early on in our performances at Theater of War, um, a uh, a general took on my question of why Sophocles wrote the play mm-hmm. or plays, and the general said, um, "I think Sophocles wrote these plays uh, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable." Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that that's what tragedy does, um, and uh, 
that we're comforted by what brings us together across extremely disparate and radically different experiences and perspectives, and we're comforted by the fact that we can all have a reaction to human suffering, mm-hmm. uh, a human reaction, um, and we're afflicted by the reality that there's so much more work to be done to mitigate the suffering of people to our left and right, and that we put on blinders every day in order to get by, but, um, you know, we're afflicted by our own moral and ethical responsibility to the people that surround us. Um, and I think that is democratic, I think that in, its, in the best sense of the word. Well, and in our country where, where people are so um, hesitant to bring up anything uncomfortable, you know, we, I've talked about it on the podcast before, when, especially reading old, older stories and things like Little Women. You know, n- no one in my world was ever trained to pay a sick visit. I don't, Nathan, you probably see some women around you who, who know how to go to the home of someone who is ill and breeze in and keep it light and keep a conversation going and bring flowers and food and leave before anyone gets tired. And that this, this, um, is a, I think a lost art or an art that's being lost. And so for, for you to push that envelope with the actors and the, the text that you have, Brian is, I think doing an incredible service to our culture at this time where you have such a a population carrying such a heavy burden. And, and if, if they get anything from the general public, it's going to be, thank you for your service or thank you for your sacrifice, which I think falls so false, so short of acknowledging any of their reality. And I, I know after, after nine 11 and, and with, um, I've worked with, uh, rape survivors before they're usually surrounded by people who don't want to bring it up because they think that that's going to upset them. And, and instead when you say, well, I think you should go to a group. Oh no, I shouldn't go to a group because it's just going to make me feel worse. And it's no, it's that shared moment of recognizing that it wasn't your fault and you did the best you could. And life isn't always fair and sometimes it's just crap and the best we can do sometimes is just to come together and acknowledge that and it's it's so hard for americans very hard for americans and i think the other thing is um uh, the plays speak to directly um what does it mean what is it like to be in the presence of of human suffering Uh, uh and why is it that we abandon so many people Uh. Um, like Philoctetes, uh, mm. like Ajax, on islands or sand dunes, and, and respectively, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, wittingly and unwittingly, mm-hmm. and metaphorically, I mean, and, not and metaphorically and literally, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and how do we, how do, and, and 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 you know, and then and then once we've awakened to that. You know, what do we do with that? Hmm. And so well, I guess the fourth element, we, you know, every performance has a reading on steroids with people, you know, <laughs> actors going for broke and leaving vocal cords ripped on the table. And then panelists who are real people who are our chorus who mediate the world of the play with the world of the audience. They build that bridge and they speak just for a few seconds from their guts. And then, and then really it's out in the audience with these questions and the whole locus of the performance shifts to the audience. And, but the fourth mm-hmm. element beyond that are, at least for many of these projects, are resources. 
um, you know, we put resources, those doctors who are describing, you know, once they're filled with a sense of ethical responsibility to these patients and they've been thinking about where their prescriptions go and what the family's living room looks like, mm. uh, you know, 10 years later, um, uh, then what do you do? And, and so, you know, we put screening and treatment resources in their hands with the hope that, of course, they'll utilize them. Um, we, you know, with the, the biggest problem for the DOD, uh, you know, at the time that we first got started was they'd appropriated billions of dollars to address the issue mm. uh, the Congress had. Um, but, it, but the stigma of mental illness and, and psychological injury was so strong, so career-ending. Mm-hmm. That no one was utilizing them. So how do you how do you get those the resources exist? How do you uh, encourage people to utilize them to, to pursue a path of health? Yeah. You know, I can't tell you. I mean, it's so gratifying. Obviously, I'm feel so lucky to do what I do. And 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 people ask, well, how did you come up with it? And I really, you know, I feel like it's just coming up with me. I mean, I didn't really <laughs> have a sense of myself until I started doing this in front of audiences. And now that we've done 400 uh, plus performances over the last five years, we just had so many people come up and say, you know. I talked to my husband or my wife for the first time, or I sought therapy for the first time, or I heard my father of the World War II generation speak for the first time, or mm. saved my marriage. Uh, it, um, uh, I had a guy come after seeing one performance on, on one coast, come to the other coast and see a performance, and I said, why are you here? And he said, because the first time I saw it, I saw myself reflected in the character, and I checked myself into a 28-day treatment program, and it saved my career and it saved my life. And mm. Um, the stories go on and on and on and on and on. Um, that it, that, and this again, we're, we're, I can fortunately say at this point that it's not simply anecdote. We're we're currently engaged in a longitudinal study with Massachusetts General Hospital as our clinical partner of the impact of one of these events and in the, in the life of an individual in the in the life of a community. Mm. Um, does it change attitude? Does it change behavior? How? What are the unintended consequences of doing this work? And, and we're looking at that. But, you know, I've obviously imbibed my own Kool-Aid. And, um, <laughs> and, and, with regard to what, and with regard to what I see, um, you know, it's clear that, um, that once people have had this sense of shock and discomfort and also communal connection, uh, many people at least seem more readily able to avail themselves of a number of paths toward healing. You know, yeah. we're, we're ecumenical about what those are. Um, mm-hmm. But we try to make sure that those paths are there at each performance. Yeah. Well, and them knowing that the, the higher-ups were in the audience with them, or family, or um, that has to be so valid. Because otherwise, suicide makes sense. If you don't have that communal experience, then then suicide does look like a, a rational alternative because you're either going to end your career or you're going to end your family or both. Or you're causing your family, yeah, exactly. You're causing your family so much pain by your very existence mm-hmm. that, that that taking your own life seems to make sense in the moment. Um, I, you know, one of the things that Sophocles does that's so remarkable that I don't know of any other at least example in Western literature of this, um, is he doesn't just stage the suicide of this great warrior, Ajax. Mm-hmm. He stages and, and articulates the ideation leading up to the suicide. Mm. 
and he clears mm-hmm. the stage of any other character, and he has this actor who would have been a combat veteran playing a combat veteran, feet from the general sitting in the front, articulating, uh, voicing his own struggle, inner struggle, uh, exemplifying, showing that this is not weakness. In fact, this may be the most profound struggle that any human being can engage upon and undertake. Um, in you know, one audience, um, I had a, someone in an army base stand up and say, I knew Ajax was thinking about killing himself when he walked away from his family, having deceived them, brandishing a weapon, mm-hmm. and went down to the sand dune. But I don't think he knew he was going to kill himself until he was alone on the sand dune with his gods. Mm-hmm. And I, I was at an Air Force base, and someone shouted out, no, those were his demons when I said that quote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most important word is alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of alone as a human being uh, without a community uh, uh, cut off, uh, but also alone spiritually, mm-hmm. um, grappling with questions that require, I think, a community um, uh, you know, to, to, to overcome. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the, I think the most profound thing that Sophocles does in this play, that's so overlooked, at least until the contemporary war has brought it back into focus, is that he brings you inside the mind of someone who's thinking about killing himself and introduces you to that insidious and extremely, uh, compelling logic mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that leads an individual like Ajax to feel that he has no other option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you go all the way there, everybody else is delusional for not seeing it as clearly as you do, because you're the rational one. Absolutely, and what's beautiful about the play and is that he does something even more, and this, is, this goes back to some of the things we've been discussing before in terms of what, what's important about the translation. I mean, there's a behavior that's, 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 that's displayed in the play that you know, is, is so profoundly recognizable to audiences, which, is, which I referenced a second ago, which is that Ajax is just raging and, and wild with sort of shame and, and rage and anger, and then all of a sudden at the end of the... Of this episode, he he goes quiet, mm-hmm. and he comes back on stage, and um, he's serene, mm-hmm. and he tells his wife, "I'm fine. You know, go back inside the tent." His battle bride, like my son, and then he says to the men, "You know, his his, his, sail, his sailors and soldiers, you know, do as I've asked, and you'll see that as unlucky as I've been today, I am now saved." And um, there's a that serenity, that clarity, mm-hmm. it's not the words, it's a behavior mm-hmm. um, that people immediately recognize. Yeah. And if they've been through it, they, they, um, you know, they, they speak to it. Yeah. The beauty of the form also in terms of our purposes is that um, it does not require a person to be confessional. It doesn't require a person to divulge something specifically about himself or herself, one can stand behind the archetypes and the metaphors and the characters, yeah. and one can also step out from behind them. 
So we see everything from, I really related to X, Y, and Z, it spoke to this Y, and then we hear people who stand up and say, you know, I am Ajax, and this is why, and this is what it was like when I was standing on the sand dune. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, but it's their choice, it's not ours. We're not coercing them. Like, I mean, not intentionally singling people out. Right. Um, and I never ask a follow-up question for that reason as well, because I figure people are going to reveal as much as they feel comfortable revealing. Is is that moment of Ajax killing himself on stage, is that the only on stage? Suicide? Yeah, in Greek, because it's always off stage. Yeah, that's right. Everything that has happened, in, to my knowledge, in Greek drama, uh, and there are plenty of suicides, um, yeah. is, is off stage and then typically revealed in a, uh, with the inkuklima, with a, um, you know, a cart that was rolled on stage that reveals what happened off stage or right. just described in a messenger speech. Um, in which, in some ways, the messenger speech is as equally powerful because, you know, if we're left to our imaginations, we're we're probably going to experience it on a far deeper level than than simply the gore of it. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think the re- I, my gut, gut guess for as to why Sophocles stages the suicide is not to stage the violence of it. I I, I doubt anyone in the audience would be shocked by the violence. Yeah. Um, What's shocking is the ideation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is hearing the thoughts and saying, oh, I, I know those thoughts. I recognize those thoughts. Oh, we mean this is the strongest warrior in the entire Greek army. He's having these thoughts, mm. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that, that alone, you know, in my mind elevates this play far higher than Aristotle or anyone else esteemed it. You know, it's, it, there's something to it that uh, is very powerful. I hope you do something with Cassandra for those of us who sat around saying, don't you see where this is going? Can't, can't we stop this before it starts? Yeah, yeah. It'll, I, we haven't done anything with Cassandra yet, but we will end up doing something with Orestia, I think, soon. Mm-hmm. So, so um, wonderful. Yeah, she will likely mm-hmm. appear. Um, I, I'm wrestling right now. We've We've... We've been approached now by a lot of places where we don't have an immediate "this is the play" response. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those right now is Ferguson, mm-hmm. um, and the worst I is a play I'm toying with for Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, the betrayal. Yeah, and what does it mean when the state is corrupt? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of justice, what does it mean when? Um, a trial by jury of peers is not enough mm-hmm. to carry out justice mm-hmm. uh, when Athena is required to intervene. And what is Athena now for us mm-hmm. and um, today? And, and, um, and these, these, you know, this is a democracy struggling with similar questions, I think, but uh, just, you know, obviously different context. Well, and, and does Clytemnestra with her acts at the end solve the problem? Right. I mean, that's what I mean by what, you know, this is, this is a murder this is, a, is an intergenerational mm-hmm. curse. It's a series of retaliatory acts of violence, and they're deeply embedded in the state itself. So, mm-hmm. what, you know, what is? How do we achieve justice in a state that's already so deeply on. implicated in the retaliatory violence that's occurring? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, you know, in a way that's not. You know, we've been approached about doing a climate change project. That's really I'm struggling with that. We've been approached about potentially doing a project for Virginia Tech about gun violence. I'm struggling mm-hmm. with that. 
you know, um, in the beginning it was so easy because we we were like we we had the plug, you know, the, the hard drive. We were trying to find the right audience to plug it into. Mm-hmm. Um, now the audiences call us, and and we've got to figure out well, how do I build this? How do we reverse engineer this to make it work? And, you could use Noah's um, Ark to do uh, climate change. <laughs> I think one could. The problem is that um, I mean, yes, and Job worked to, to that effect as well. So yeah. We did it. You know, we did it. And, um, after Hurricane Sandy here in all five boroughs, mm. in churches and synagogues and in community spaces. Mm. Um, the, yeah, I mean, the larger question of humans' role in all of that, I suppose Noah raises that. The problem is with the big biblical text, they require a great deal of adaptation in order to become dramatically viable. Yeah, I mean, true. Darren Aronofsky may be aside, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, um, it, you know it's, a, it's a struggle. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have a lot more. I have more questions than I have answers these days about, you know. Um, but it's probably a good problem to have, you know, at this point. Um, well, do you have a staff that works with you? I have a business partner uh, who really, her name's Phyllis Coffin. She makes a lot of it possible. She's a lawyer who uh, quit her job as a lawyer to become my business partner. And, um, good for her. And then we have, typically we have one employee right now. We have a, love, a young classicist and director uh, Named Greg Taubman, and, and he—they handle a lot of the, you know, sort of institutional administrative issues on a daily basis. We always have a couple of interns rotating through, um, but we are purposefully small and nimble. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a small for-profit, not a non-profit. Like that, we want to have as much autonomy over what we do and the mm-hmm. least overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we structured it the way we have. Um, it's not necessarily a sustainable model for growth. Um, but it definitely permits us to uh, move quickly. I'm I'm familiar with that non-growth model for business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not a completely losing proposition, nope. but um, nope. that bricks and mortar are a problem for any business because yeah. once you start to build build it all, then um, yeah. you have to support it and sustain it. Um, what's great about the current situation is that we're able to like we'll get a call and we can develop something and and pilot it. Um, and we don't need to ask anyone's permission. And, That's you know, lovely. Yeah. Well, if you ever wanted to do uh, your translations as a radio play or a, an online uh, just vocal adaptation, let let me know. Oh, thanks. So well, I would I would be interested in that. Um, I, I've long harbored an interest in seeing if this form could be translated into something that would work in radio or podcast form, mm-hmm. um, where some kind of, uh, and it may be similar to what you've been doing already, but some kind of um, um, confluence of really well-performed mm-hmm. uh, classical text and current issues are brought together. Um, and I've been talking to some people on radio and podcasting about mm-hmm. it, but... Uh, no, it's a lovely it's a lovely market, and there's some amazing online community work that can be done for people who does, can't get to your shows in person. It does seem that um, yeah, that this is the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, listening is a new reading. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, and even Audible uh, is still developing, you know, content specifically for Audible in the style of radio plays. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an interesting concept. The, you know, the word for theater in Greek, as I'm sure you know, means seeing place. But if you've been to the theater of Dionysus um, and you've heard the incredible acoustics mm-hmm. um, in that space and in other amphitheaters, um, yeah. one sees 
It's built by Tiresias, and I kind of am Tyresias. I'm kind of like a bat. I echolocate. I'm more oral than visual. Mm-hmm. For me, um, the plays work as radio plays because it actually was the listening play. Well, and you do them that way because you don't have sets and costumes and you don't have actors with blocks. The problem with costumes and blocking and props is that everything is so overdetermined and loaded right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Sandals, sheets, masks, um, Mm -hmm. and any of that stuff, battle axes, (laughs) they all um, are, uh, they have all been abused and used in a way that I think detracts from the direct effect of the plays on, on the well, audience. And it distances so. modern audiences from the yeah. immediacy of the words, too, I think. And I would say, I would argue, and again, I'm not an academic, I'm not an expert, but um, from a dramaturgical or stagecraft perspective, I think the, um, the, the virtue of a mask uh, with an amp- potentially with an amplification property, although that's, I guess, conjecture at this point, uh, a mask um, where you have an audience that's over 17,000 uh, in a space as big as the Theater of Dionysus is the people in the back aren't going to see and you know anything. Yeah, um, They're going to hear it. Um, and so there's great, I think, utility in the stylized gesture and the mask. But if you're in a 250-seat black box, mm. um, aside from the distancing cultural effects of all these sort of relics and artifacts of the ancient world, um, I think, yeah, you know, those devices aren't, aren't necessary. Yeah. Um, they, there might be an aesthetic way to use them. I've seen directors deploy them to great effect, but um, at least for my money, um, I, I really want to hear the text first. And as I'm learning, I learned recently that um, maybe from Radiolab or some other podcast that um, Oliver Sacks or somebody that, that um, sound is the primary of our senses that we hear before any other hmm. sense. That's faster. The connections in the brain are faster. Hmm. That speaks to, that speaks mm-hmm. to my experience of, of drama and of, of storytelling. Yeah, there have been times when I've had to close my eyes. And I know it happens with autistic kids, too, that they, um, there's too, too much bandwidth gets used up by listening so that if you add your ear, your eyes to that you can't you can't focus anymore yeah a little little heel starts spinning uh-huh. yeah so you totally close your eyes so you can pay attention yeah and a lot of our audiences do um and we've had audiences some audiences say we wish you had the actors behind the curtain mm. <laughs> Huh. Um, you know, well, so they have they have the direct experience of the voice in a space, mm-hmm. um, but they're not distracted by the, the visual presence of the actor. Well, and um, if it's Paul Giamatti or David Strathairn, you yeah, can see why it could be distracting. Might want to go. Yeah, yeah. I think we're all a little bit different in this. We're saying calibrated slightly differently. Some people really are more visual, but um, I, and I am interested in directing full productions of the plays, but um, I'm not interested in sheets and sandals and. Uh-uh. Um, Good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank you um, so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, yes. For Thank you for coming on. I'll... Thank you so much, Brian. All right. Thank and you. Congratulations uh, and good luck. Okay. All right. Thank, thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs>